and we're back. Pazicon Online 2021 seminars continue with the latest Tales from the Page, in which members of the No Direction Network talk to a member of the Paizo staff. In this case, we are talking with developer Eleanor Farron. Eleanor, welcome Hello. back. Hello, it's good to be back. Uh, and it's always good to have you. You are one of the two developers that is mainly in charge of the Lost Omens line, which has been one of the biggest surprises since second edition, is a big, like, a big hit with the No Direction staff. And we are especially excited about the Mwangi Expanse. So I know you just read a whole seminar about the Mwangi Expanse, but we do just want to know, like, why? Why is the Mwangi Expanse the next book that's getting the hardcover? Why was now the good time for the Mwangi Expanse to get that hardcover treatment? Uh, well, I, I mentioned it before, but our first edition treatment of the Mwangi Expanse painted a very vibrant world and then almost pushed it aside as an afterthought. Um, it was focused on outsiders going there to explore the tangled jungle, very, very sort of, you know, turn of the century, heart of darkness kind of mindset. And we've wanted to give it the respect it deserves for a while now. Um, we saw the opportunity when the Magambia uh, showed up as one of the large organizations in the character guide and, and to some lesser extent the world guide um, because we had given that organization such a huge forefront and, and it had sort of sprung logically from that, well, what kind of big organizations would player characters be interested in? The answer for, you know, magic facing characters was this huge magical academy that was very old and had a lot of prestige um, that we hadn't uh, defined so well that people felt boxed in. Um, it, it was new enough on low enough on the details that uh, a new player wouldn't feel overwhelmed by all this lore just being dumped on them. Um, we could we could present a very concise view of what the Magambia was. And so it was sort of um, a shoe-in for one of the major organizations we wanted to present to newer players. Uh, and because of that huge role, uh, we gave the Magambia um, sort of we began pushing for uh, well let's let's do the Mwangi expanse let's show the home of this major institution let's show the city of Nantambu let's show the areas around Nantambu that sort of define their relationships with their neighbors and all of that um and you know we just just saying that um we we've wanted this for a while i think a lot of other people have wanted this for a while too i think um people have wanted to step away from only western fantasy that has sort of dominated the hobby for a long time um we want to see you know branch out see more parts of the world really feel like we're exploring something as opposed to you know retreading old tropes that are still good but have become very familiar and um, I, I think a lot of the art and the comments that we uh, have gotten um, really show that sort of enthusiasm for something that is, is familiar enough, but still very different than what we're used to. 
you mentioned in the panel that the uh, the political situation is a bit different down in the Wongi Expanse than we would be uh, in some of the more northern uh, inner sea area, where it's a whole lot of big monolithic nations, border to border. So what is the political, uh, like uh, on the ground level politics of the Wongi Expanse? And does the Magambia really uh, influence that in a major way? Um, the Magambia does around the nation of Nantambu. Uh, I mentioned in the panel that you, uh, because of the abundance of the Mwangi Expanse, uh, you basically have these huge, powerful sea states, but they're self-sufficient. Uh, they, if they need something, they'll just trade with the people around them. Um, and so you can sort of think of, uh, for instance, Senghor, the city that is uh, on the western coast of uh, the Mwangi Expanse. You, you could sort of think of that as maybe something like a nation. There's Senghor and all the people around Senghor sort of in that city's influence. But um, that's it. They don't really have these big nations with multiple cities and towns and things like that. Um, it's not, that's not really how they view things. It's just Senghor. Senghor is the nation. Uh, there's one exception to that, though, which is Vidrian. Um, Vidrian is a nation with borders, but that's because the colonialist rule basically set borders all over that. So Vidrian is sort of a weird exception uh, to the rule. But for the most part, if you talk about a city, you are talking about sort of like the major powerhouse in that area, but not everyone is necessarily going to say, oh, I'm from Senghor. They, they might say, I'm from so and such village, and you recognize that as near Senghor. Um, they would probably define themselves more along the lines of people or, um, you know, uh, maybe, maybe like geographic regions or something like that, than saying, you know, oh, I'm from Nantambu even. Um, but Nantambu does actually have a very huge impact on the area around it because um, this, the school, um, the Magambia, has the Tempest Sun Majors, which are dedicated to defending Nantambu, and they are dedicated to the point that no enemy has ever gotten within 200 miles of the city. And so if you're the, in that 200 miles, you're just like, oh, well, okay, the Tempest Sun Majors will take care of things. Um, and and they've basically set up, you know, sort of alliances with Nantabu because they're like, I, I want to get on this. This is good. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the people in the area, they don't have to spend on like military and training warriors. Uh, instead, they like to tithe their surplus to Nantambu as just sort of, you know, uh, an agreement between the two peoples, you know, you're protecting us, we're going to, you know, send supplies to your soldiers so we don't have to, you know, train our own. And that's part of why the Magambi is so wealthy, why it can afford to basically uh, host all of these students from all over the expanse and even pay them a stipend for their work and service and learning um, and still be able to, you know, run the school. Oh, we don't hear <laughs> Ryan. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan is Ryan, mute. Ryan, you're on mute. <laughs> <laughs> ah. 
(laughs) As we all heard me saying, one of the big selling points of the new book is the six new ancestries that are being introduced. So I'm curious why it was decided that the Mwangi Expanse really needed new ancestries to help flesh out just what the region is and really explore the the uh the purpose of the book and why these six ancestries are the ancestries you went with uh well a lot of the core ancestries are based a lot in sort of western literature western mythology you know that the elves and dwarves sort of come from uh, like norse or i'm sure people will argue but it's still sort of a a Scandinavian or European sort of thing that we associate them with, even though in Pathfinder, you know, your elves are aliens and all that, but uh, that's still where the roots are coming from. You know, halflings are uh, a completely legally distinct entity that may resemble something from a very popular and well-known trilogy of books that was made into movies in the 2000s. and and so we didn't want i mean we we adapted some of those concepts to the mwangi expanse and you'll see that with the elven nations down there the dwarven nations uh, the songo halflings uh the matanji orcs but at the same time we were still drawing from those westernized roots and we wanted to also bring in uh, things from African mythology to not just uh, have it based on Pathfinder as we know it, to, but to expand our concept of the setting along with, you know, expanding our geographic knowledge, our city knowledge, and that sort of thing. Um, and so things like Gripley and Nulls were kind of a shoe-in. Same with the Anadi because, um, you know, there are, there are prominent uh, Anansi legends down in West Africa, um, but the Gripley, uh, you know, sort of this this frog sort of thing. And we have frogs up here, but we don't really acknowledge them in our day-to-day life. You sort of have to go out of your way to find them. Um, but somewhere like a jungle, you know, you have lots of frogs that we like to think of. And so you had the Gripley as the frog people down there. Um, there's a lot, a lot of mythology surrounding hyenas. And so the gnolls fit in very well there. And then going in, we knew that people had been desperately dying to know what the heck a Kanrasu, a Galoma, or a Shisk was ever since they were mentioned in the world guide. And so we knew if we didn't, do it here. Uh, we were going to get a lot of angry messages on the forums. And so uh, we decided it was time to, uh, you know, show off. And also, you know, knowing that these were some of the rarest people in our setting, just sort of demonstrate, you know, well, what's it mean to be super high fan of the super out there and uh, just sort of display that with these new people. Yeah, starting with the Kunrasu, a playable cosmic force ball with an exoskeleton made out of uh, a tree, a nursing tree, yeah. is, a nursing log. That was what you said, right? Yeah. But well, uh, their initial body starts off as like the arm of another Kunrasu. That's sort of like their initial tree, and then they kind of you know grow into their exoskeleton. And then you, um, I guess, like in order to grow up, you put them on a nursery log, so they can like get some nutrients and grow up big and strong. 
Okay, so they're feeding off the nursery log, but they are some like a, a mulched piece of a former Kunrasu, or not a former Kunrasu, but like a mulched piece that was part of a Kunrasu previously. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> that's how. That, that's not uncommon. I've raised apple trees that are from branches of other apple trees. I mean, he's he's got you there. Um, but but yeah. Um... Are apple trees cosmic force balls? <laughs> I mean, they're delicious. Anything, I guess. Can you really prove so the cosmic... apples aren't from space? <laughs> the cosmic part. How does that point to things? Uh, well, I, I mentioned on the panel that um, uh, their their only description in the world guide was that they were aeon worshippers, and um, Ellie Bestian wrote them and gave us the concept of basically these little cosmic balls that uh, might have been part of a plimmer aeon those are the 20th level ones that basically look like a, a human shaped cosmos and um but but something went wrong and it shattered into all these little cosmic balls that you know f formed up an, an exoskeleton around themselves and so so there are I guess you could think of them as maybe like a mini Aeon or something like that. They tend to think of themselves as being part of that cosmology. They feel like they are beholden to Aeons and that's why they worship them. Um, you could think of them as just like a sapient radio wave or like a little chunk of space all rolled up into a little ball. Um, and uh, one of the things that I, I like to emphasize is they, they have a charisma penalty because interfacing with these organic or, or even just sapient beings is very difficult for them because they are basically a self-aware, you know, gamma ray or something like that in a tree. And, and they're still trying to kind of figure out how people work. Uh, you know, uh, maybe if I flash some lights at them and play a little tune, they'll they'll respond. No. I was making a little bit light of the cosmo, like the 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 concept of the Kansaru being so mind blowing. I actually am super intrigued by them, and if I know it's a rare ancestry, but I look forward to the chance to get one to the table. Yeah, I mean, you just have to arm lock your GM or what? <laughs> I, I, I want to ask nicely. about. <laughs> I want to ask about the Anadi specifically, and they have they're a fan favorite ever since uh, Alternate Wilderness when we got that little splash page with one of them uh, on it in the, as a student in the Magambia. Um, so how like what can we expect? What's new for the Anadi uh, that we haven't seen before? Uh, so the, the interesting thing about the Anadi is that um, their homeland, Nervacha, is actually outside of the Mwangi Expanse. It's to the south in southern Garun. So we don't actually get into their homeworld very much. Um, it, a lot of the information is, in fact, confined to the roles for them to play. Um, if you, if you want to go looking for like more of them, uh, they they show up more in the adventure paths. I feel um, it's sort of like they're. Um, you can sort of consider it as if they're sort of as new to us as they are to the people of Galarian, and they're just sort of 
reaching out a adorable little leg and sort of tapping their way into the inner sea region and you get to find out about them um, along with you know the people who are encountering them along these adventures and you know we may we may yet do a southern garen book and go into nirvacha but as it is it's sort of the information sort of dribbling out uh they get mentions in the Mongi book, uh, Grandmother Spider is there again, and she tends to be connected to the Anadi. Um, and of course, the ancestry entry has some uh, information on them, but uh, we don't, ha we haven't really done a deep dive yet. Um, I think that's something you could definitely put in a demand for that might show up in like a, an AP back matter, or maybe we will get that Southern Garum book one day. Now, the most familiar of the six new ancestries is the Knoll, and I was originally going to make my question about how, like, we've been seeing a lot of traditionally cast villains being recast as playable ancestries, and the Knoll was the one that I was having the hardest time accepting as not the evil ancestry we knew them as. But then, Spamotron in chat has a question <laughs> related to that. Uh, saying they understand that in some parts of Africa, hyenas are considered to be protectors of the spirit world, and they frighten away and even eat evil spirits. So uh, do Mwangi Knowles draw on any of that lore? Um, yeah, they draw on uh, some lore. I don't think they draw particularly on that specific um, bit of lore. Um, but we, we uh, the author of the Knowles, like sort of searched far and wide for for hyena myths and they're very prominent and because they're very prominent and there's a lot of different cultures in africa obviously uh there's a lot of different takes on them uh some of them they're basically the devil incarnate uh there a lot of them where they're considered to be witch-like um animals and and some of them they are protective um one of the feats which is one of the most interesting ones because i'd never heard this before um was that the flesh from the left side of a hyena would heal but the flesh of the right side was poisonous or it might have been vice versa i don't have the book in front of me but um one of the feats actually draws on that where they can like feed you blood from the healing side of their body and and sort of like help you recover hp um and so so uh the gnolls as presented in the wangi book are are very neutral in their outlook they could be good or evil um most of the time they are just you know living their lives like most other people but their culture really runs contrary to human culture because of uh things that gnolls do that they consider respectful are things that we sort of consider atrocities <laughs> um i the most well so the most prominent one um would be their habit of cannibalism uh we we use cannibalism to to say any sapient race although gnolls are also cannibals in that they'll eat their own um you you or i if we ran across somebody just like you know chowing down on a human body would probably not um think about the the social uh implications of that we'd probably just you know consider them to maybe be some bad dudes but um it notes in the uh noel write-up that this is their way of respecting you 
because they're trying to bring your qualities into their people by eating you. Uh, and it's the same for when they eat their own is they don't, they don't want their people to rot on the ground like a piece of trash. They want to bring their loved ones back into their people so that they can stay with them forever. And so when a knoll eats you, it's a sign of respect. And if they, you know, strew your bodies on the ground like garbage, that's them insulting you. But a lot of humans just, even if they know this for a fact, they just can't get the emotional impact of seeing like this humanoid dog monster chew somebody's face off. And so they constantly clash over this kind of thing. But it's not because the gnolls are evil. Uh, it's because they have a different way of seeing things. And that's not to say that there aren't evil gnolls in the Mwangi Expanse, um, but it's to say that um, they can be good or evil or neutral like any other people. They have their own viewpoints and goals like any other people. And so to see a gnoll in the Mwangi Expanse, you might go, yeah, that's, that's a witch creature right there. Stay away from them. But it's it's sort of more along the lines of, you know, those kids are from a bad part of town. Don't associate with them as opposed to, you know, that's a monster. We need to stab it. It's not really appropriate to stab a knoll if they just walk into town. Now, one of the things uh, the Malangi book seems to be emphasizing, and indeed a lot of the uh, the content we've seen in, in Malangi, set in Malangi before, such as the Ekujay elves, is that... Um, are you is will this help uh show that there's not one monolithic correct way to view the ancestries in galarian yeah uh very much so um i mean we have all, all of these ancestries there in the book are things that we touched on in first edition to recognize that you know these are different people from a different environment they adapted differently because of that environment. They have their own traditions, they have their own history, all of that. They're not a monolith, uh, not even the dwarves who sort of like base their identity around wanting to be a monolith are not a monolith. Um, but we never really did a deep dive into any of them. It was just sort of the, oh yeah, these people should be different. And then it, we sort of copy pasted the same paragraphs about them throughout all of our products. So this was our chance to really get in there and say, um, you're at a completely different continent. This is a completely different world. The people here aren't going to be the same as what you have assumed and learned and expected from where you grew up. That's just not how it works. Um, I Sol mentioned the orcs down there. Um, they're not like how we think of orcs in Avistan. They are highly respected. They are known to be demon hunters. If you go in there and start talking trash with an orc, everybody's going to look at you badly uh, because what the heck, this is a highly respected uh, person. This is a guest. We honor them. What are you doing? Um, uh, so yeah, we th uh, these are all people who have been separated from Avistan by thousands of years, maybe even tens of thousands of years, um, and expecting them to be the same is uh, is a foolhardy. Now we've we've really got to talk about 
uh, the Magambia, the surrounding regions, some of the other uh, seem to be fairly wonderful places to be in the Mwangi Expanse. But this is a adventure location. This is an RPG. There needs to be conflict. What terrible things are in Mwangi that we will discover in this book? Uh, so there's the entire city of Usaru, which uh, is dedicated entirely to Angazan, the demon lord of strength. Um, it's not a good place to be. If you're a human there, you're basically a second-class citizen. It's stated that the humans there put out bowls of meat to distract the local Charukara so that the Charuka do not drag them out of their homes and sacrifice them to try and create a river of literal blood. Um, don't go there. It's not nice. Uh, there is, there's Mizali, which is the sort of oppressive city where you can, you can live a normal life if you don't mind keeping your head down, keeping your mouth shut and doing everything that you're told and hoping something horrible doesn't happen anyway. Um, it's, it's ruled by an undead mummy child god who, who blew up like an entire army of foreign soldiers and so uh most people are not arguing on the god front um but uh he's he lost all of his empathy when he transitioned into undeath and he's very jealous and paranoid and for a long time people did not want to speak out against him because um he was so powerful but also because he was so powerful against people seeking to harm the Wangi expanse. But now it's becoming evident that as other, you know, nations are rising up, that he is sort of casting a jealous eye towards them. And he might start his own war against those he can, those that people, you know, consider part of the Wangi expanse, uh, just sort of, you know, was it really worth keeping this, toxic element around of course we say that but you know he he seems to have the power of a god and so you, it's not really so much of a choice on whether you keep him around but um yeah there's worries that he may start a war across the Mwangi expanse to destroy vidrian which has just like thrown off the the pirates of the shackles and the colonialist rule of sargava um so, uh, Vidrian is sort of an interesting case. Um, they had to rely so heavily on criminal elements to even get their revolution to go. I mean, the revolution was a criminal element. Their navy is almost completely made up of stolen ships. Um, and so as a result, there's sort of like this truce in between the criminal element and the government that they're all going to work for the nation's betterment. But that means you might fall foul of criminals at Vidrian, and uh, it's not going to be pleasant. Um, there's, of course, the Pirates of the Shackles all over the place. The pirates have started a war with the Mbeki dwarves, known as uh, the Third Corsair War. Um, obviously, there were two others, but those aren't ongoing because they ended, so there could be a third one. Um, and that's sort of a bloody mess. Um, and the Torvs are, are sort of thinking of more and more extreme actions to get rid of the Corsairs indefinitely. Uh, so you don't want to get caught up in that. Um, and of course, there's all sorts of dangers out in the jungle. 
there's there's ruins that may or may not be demon haunted. There's ruins that are supposedly demon haunted, but are actually ruled over by an evil green dragon who will probably eat you unless you worship Phrasma, in which case she is actually quite devout. Um, and and there are there are too many things for me to name, and I do not want to name them all because you should buy the book. But um, yeah, that's just a sampling of some of the nonsense that's going down there. Um, just a few of the uh, problems and plot hooks. It's not even touching on adventures like the Slithering or adventures like the Strength of Thousands Adventure Path. <laughs> we do want to talk about the Strength of Thousands Adventure Path, but there's three questions here from chat that I want to make sure we cover first. One is from Three-Headed Monster Zero. What can you tell us about the other Moingi gods? Uh, they're sort of an interesting bunch. Uh, I can give you some rundowns. I mentioned Adanye, the catfolk god of the hearth um, on one of the Paizo Fridays. Uh, she, is, she basically is just meant to be an embodiment of that feeling of home sitting by a fire being a cat in front of the fire and just you know soaking up all those good vibes and so she she commands her followers to you know go out there and be creative but still appreciate uh the home and protect the home um there is lubaiko uh who very briefly showed up in one of the keynote slides she was holding a Molotov cocktail and dressed in a very fancy suit. Um, she is the god of sparks, both literal and metaphorical. Um, and so she likes it when things catch fire in both senses. She likes it if your field in the dry season burns to the ground. She likes it if you have an idea that just sweeps across an entire city or an entire continent. Um, she likes that kind of explosive, uh, either creativity or destruction, either way, she just wants to see things take off like that. And, uh, she, kind of, you know, a double-edged sword, obviously, but, um, because of some of the revolutions in Vigitry and, and other places in the Expanse lately, she's suddenly surged in popularity. Uh, there's Belumdar, who is uh, the god of big things. <laughs> uh, very interesting god. I don't know how many people would want to worship god of big, but uh, he, he, he is uh, definitely one of the favorites among the staff, I think. Um, if we worship him, do the big alligators and big hippos leave us alone? No, you need to get bigger. Oh, <laughs> they are bigger than you. You are clearly slacking. Um, there, there's a chaotic neutral god of fear uh, that is um, Calicut. Um, and he's, he's chaotic neutral because he doesn't do it just because he enjoys it. If he enjoys it, he's keeping quiet about it. Um, he's doing it because uh, there are places that people should not go. And the way to keep them away is to scare them off, in his opinion. And the way to keep 
uh, very bad people from doing very bad things is you can't appeal to their morality because they are awful. Um, but you can threaten them with horrible maiming and death and they will not do bad things. That's his view on the world. He's very cynical, but at the same time, you know, he will, he, he will field champions because he is sort of on this, this very delicate balance between good and evil. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, some of your old favorites will return. Grandmother Spider, I mentioned, was in there. Um, the three old sun gods of Mazali who showed up in Legends get a bigger entry in here. Um, so yeah, that's there's a there's a whole host of of gods you can turn to if you don't want to stick with Desna or Gazra or some of the other very popular uh, inner sea gods that are also down in the Morgi Expanse. Extonland has a question. It's a, a clever question. Given the nature of the continent's politics being built around city-states, leaving the wilds to themselves by and large, what role do the Fae play in the jungle politics? It's... It's one of those all politics are local sort of thing. Um, there aren't as many Fae strongholds as you think because there are all kinds of demons all over the place. Um, but this is definitely a place that is so huge and so unexplored that anywhere you go could have its own set of politics because there are just that many small and, and scattered cultures that are just all across the expanse uh, because they're not all dominate, dominated by these uh, nations. Um, and so when you go out there, basically anything goes. Uh, you could have local people who just go out and talk to the Fae. You could have, uh, I, and we mentioned, um, you know, people who will go out and uh, make deals with demons or dragons. Uh, just to get business done. Um, the Baycar people are especially known for that. It's just instead of, you know, we're going to go out and fight the demons, it's like we're going to make a bargain so they go off the road and leave our trade routes alone. Um, there are There is a group of extremely prominent fae uh, known as the Biloco um, and sometimes the Eloco, depending on uh, how powerful they are. Um, they're these very small humanoids that have like a crocodile snout, uh, not like a face, not their entire head, just from the nose down is crocodile. And um, they have their own city. It's a bit messy, <laughs> but they have their own city. Um, they, they have settlements all over the jungle. Um, they, they can basically dominate some of the areas they're in. At the same time, they're not the most political uh, because they mostly focus on having a full stomach. Uh, but you could probably negotiate with them if you had enough food with you. All right, Bronze Dragon 86 has asked five or six times for more information about Mwangi orcs. I know you touched on them. I confirmed in chat whether what you said was enough. And they said, no more. Come on, buy the book. Um, <laughs> so, 
Yeah, we mentioned that they're they're actually very respected down in the Wangi Expanse because they are demon hunters. Um, when they came up, um, being driven upwards from the Dwarven Quest from the Sky, they came up and just kind of settled in the jungle there. Um, and the dwarves mostly went to the mountains among, you know, some other places. And so they just kind of hang hung out in the jungle. And it's like, it's not so bad here. I mean, the trees cover all the sunlight. We'll, we'll, we'll stay. Uh, and then they ran afoul of these Angazani Charuka. Um, and the Charuka have something that breaks the known laws of Galarian. They can reincarnate people who don't want to be reincarnated and they get reincarnated into Charuka uh, servants of Angazon. Um, and the orcs considered this the most blasphemous, unholy thing that could possibly happen. And they swore themselves to kill all demons and all servants of demons, including Angazon. And they have kept to that tradition to this day. Um, and they actually have a very interesting city out in the jungle. Um, it's written by Dwayne Bird. Um, so they have this huge like circular wall and then inside of those walls are more and more circular walls, like almost like a Russian nesting doll, except without the, you know, top, <laughs> there's no giant matroshka uh, to put on this city, but, um, uh, it's basically all of their cities are in these rings and each outer ring is meant to protect the rings that are inside of that outer ring. So as you like the, the first ring is like the most heavily militarized um, area of this orc city. Uh, and then as you go further inland, you get more and more, you know, these are, these are where crafters are, these are where farmers are. And in the very center ring, you've got sort of like the orc metrop uh, metropolitus, where all the posh aristocratic orcs are. <laughs> and and it's they're actually like all the aristocrat orcs are super just like I, I think I think one of the editors said they wanted to be nigged by the posh orcs because they're super judgmental and snooty and and like they're horrible but the, the warrior orcs are so proud of them because it means that they have been kept so safe from the dangers outside that they can be spoiled rotten and horrible. And they are proud of that as an achievement. So it has a gooey center. <laughs> kind of. It's like when you're ordering a donut and it's mayonnaise filled. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you put that evil on us, Param? Why would you put that evil on all of the Twitch chat viewers? <laughs> because my next question is, they're, they're hunting all these demons. Why are there so many demons? What are the demons up to? I don't know. I mean, uh, things kind of went south during Earthfall because uh, the, the dragon god Dahak ripped his way out of his home in the abyss and set the whole place on fire. So maybe that's where they all came from, but uh, there's sort of like a big, um, certainly that probably brought in some demons. And uh, there was an empire known as Rastel that 
wanted to destroy its rival and so summoned a giant army of demons, which uh, destroyed its rival and it destroyed Rastel. So that's probably where some of the demons came from. And uh, some Clipoth runestones have landed in the area. So that's probably where some Clipoths and demons came from. It's really just a big spot and there's so many trees that it's hard to find the demons and get rid of them once they've shown up. And uh, some of the people who live in the expanse have ancestral traditions of making deals with devils and demons. And, and so you, you just, you have people who keep bringing them in and nobody's doing a good job kicking them out. All right, we are running low on time. So we need to talk about the Strength of Thousands Adventure Path. It is an adventure path that takes place in the Magambia. It is the Magic School Adventure Path. And it's from what was told at the seminar, it takes place not only years, like decades. You go from a student to a teacher. I mean, it depends on how fast you're willing to accept your academic advancement. But yes, you go from just uh, enrolling in this magic academy to uh, being a teacher and then and then um, being a more prominent teacher, basically, uh, getting into ventures that can affect the uh, entire school, the entire city of Nantambu, uh, that entire chunk of the Mwangi Expanse. Um, and so it's meant to take place, you know, uh, over a series of years, maybe even decades, it's basically going to come down to how much downtime you and your other players want to put in to this uh, adventure path. It really does sound like it's a downtime adventure path. It feels like you're going to be spending as much time or, or far less time in exploration, far more time in class and study and interacting with the people around you. Uh, it's one of those things where it depends on what you want to focus on. Uh, there are certainly, we've included the elements for you to just flesh out all of that studying and, um, and research and learning and all of that as much as you wanted to. At the same time, we acknowledge that, you know, most of us did not enjoy school when we were in it. Maybe you don't <laughs> want to be in school in your Pathfinder game. Uh, and so uh, we, we have given you the tools for the academic parts and then the adventure path is the adventure where you go out and, you know, um, find bugs or whatever and punch them. And uh, so, so it's, really, it's really meant for you and your group to decide on what sort of experience you want. Now, uh, one of the things about the Magambia and El Mage Jatumbe and how this uh, school of magic and, and philosophy of magic has been expressed in the past is it's primal magic and arcane magic together. And those don't usually in fiction get lumped together uh, as much. So what does that magical philosophy look like? What is that? How is that expressed in how the the uh, the school teaches it and, and how the adventure goes? So the basic premise, uh, the basic philosophy behind the entire Magambia boils down to old mage Jethenbe's teaching that magic is magic. It doesn't matter where it came from. Um, all of the distinctions that we as 
you know, players and we as player characters have drawn between, you know, primal magic, occult magic, divine magic, arcane magic, they're all false. Magic is all the same. There's just different ways to conjure it. And so the Magambia has taken that to heart. Um, and, but it turns out that those, those borders that are drawn are harder for your average person to break than say the legendary old mage who brought magic back to Galarian by stealing secrets from gods and devils and aeons. Um, you know, um, Jatembe may have had a philosophy that he understood better than your average person on the street. Uh, so the Magambia did its best to, to practice the whole, you know, magic is magic no matter where it came from. They have only succeeded at combining arcane and uh, primal magic. Um, if you want to ask Mark Seifter, who gets really technical into these sort of delineations, it'd be because uh, the arcane and primal magic both have a physical component to where it comes from. Um, and so, you know, it's easier to combine those two because they have that in common. Um, and one of the branches of the Magambia known as the Cascade Bearers are the kind of people who push magical research forward and they're still trying to combine other kinds of magic. Can you combine arcane and occult? Can you combine uh, divine and arcane or divine and primal? Um, so it's it's basically a f it's it's something that they had a very strong background in both arcane and primal magic, and they have succeeded in combining those two by drawing on these traditions from the cultures and from old Major Tembe's teachings. Um, and they haven't succeeded at pushing it further yet. Maybe over the course of this adventure, you might talk to your GM about, can I try to be part of the Cascade Bears and push that boundary further? And maybe you might be at the cutting edge of that sort of research. Towards the end of first edition, there was actually uh, some character options presented that uh, that let these sorts of characters uh, be possible. Where like wizards were prepping druid spells and wizard slots. And is there going to be any support material in this adventure to express that blending, or is this something that you all think that uh, second edition does well enough uh, with its multi-classing? That's something to ask Ron Lundine about, because I have no say whatsoever in the adventure back matter, and some of it's still being written. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I would I would pester Ron Lundine on that. Um, certainly, you can take some of the options from Secrets of Magic, which will be coming out around the time this adventure path comes out, and sort of because of how unusual some of them are, maybe that is a branch that you are on the cutting edge line of. Uh, maybe you can use some of those rules to represent uh, blending traditions of magic. So a lot of what you were saying did remind me of Secrets of Magic and some of the slides that we saw in yesterday's presentation, or maybe it was two days ago. I don't know. It's PaizoCon. It's all blending together. Was Secrets of Magic, like, uh, did the teams work very close together on the Mwangi Expanse and Secrets of Magic so that the Strength of Thousands adventure path is, like, as fully actualized as it could possibly be? Uh, not, 
not like super closely because those two projects um, were not quite in sync with each other when we were working on them. Secrets of Magic actually, because it's a core rule book, had to be started far before um, the work on the Boggy Expanse and um, Strength of Thousands Adventure Path showed up. We definitely had it in mind both for the designers when they were writing that book and for us when we were designing um, you know, the adventure and the setting book, that Secrets of Magic and these, uh, these two products would be coming out at around the same time and that they would touch on each other. But we didn't, we didn't really want to go and lock Secrets of Magic into, you know, you have to keep this adventure path in mind. Well, the adventure path hasn't even been written. We simply trusted that because the Megambia is such a magic-focused school, that magic-focused options would fit into them well, no matter what the team ended up picking on. And I think that there are a lot of options in Secrets of Magic where, you know, you're player character could go, oh, well, I I want to be, you know, researching this thing. Um, I want to be a, maybe a geomancer or something like that. I want to look into ley lines. And, you know, we've we've mentioned ley lines in the Mwangi Expanse, and there are definitely places of import in the adventure path where that might come up. But we didn't lock them into each other so that it's just like if you have secrets of magic and you can look on page 94 and see the geomancer rules and if you have that product then you can do this special thing um we we more trusted that uh the two products would fit together without us having to force it oh sorry Pam. i thought so am i asking my question yeah, go. <laughs> okay, sorry. So, uh, you had mentioned the um, bug mom in the seminar, and I know that's <laughs> a question that did not get asked on the seminar, but was asked in chat then was if somebody could be, uh, could romance bug mom. So I guess the question is, is it single bug mom? It, it, it's unspecified bug mom. So talk to your GM on whether you would like to romance single bug mom or be a homewrecker, you terrible, awful, rotten person. Oh, that be like a web wrecker? <laughs> well, actually, the Anadi do have something known as web marriages, uh, where they have <laughs> three to five. Uh, actually, that's that's their most common sort of household unit is they have three to five involved in Anadi. So, I guess either way, you just have to put up with Bug Mom and three to five other Anadi who you need to negotiate this relationship with. But have fun with that. <laughs> oh, I will. One of the uh, reasons that uh, we're so excited about this book, besides the setting, is that uh, specifically you and Luis with the Lost Omens line have kind of been the secret rock stars of second edition, or not so secret. I mean, uh, with uh, Lost Omens Legends, you took a book type that I usually don't like, which are just NPC anthologies, and made it one of the most compelling setting books I've ever read. What is it about the Lost Omens line and what you all are doing with it that has made it such a fantastic product line. But 
I mean, I'm glad you like it, but when you ask, you know, why am I so great? It's like, I don't know. I'm, that seems like something you make the call on. Um, Luis Loza is awesome. So I guess we just rub him against the computer and some of his awesomeness gets into the PDF. And that's why it's so cool. Um, You're so but... visual. <laughs> I mean, we 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 do believe that Luis Loza is awesome. Uh, so much so he's a network member over at No Direction as well. But your name's on all these books too. You're part of that awesome. So that's why I was like, you keep doing it again and again and again. This isn't an accident. So why are these so great? I, I don't know. I mean, you you tell me what you like about them. <laughs> <laughs> They're compelling. They make me think this world is real. It's wonderful. They're never what I expect the next book to be about, and I get super excited that I didn't think I would be. Well, I, there you go. I mean, we we really she like to delve the in. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so angry at you right now, Eleanor. <laughs> Ask Twitch chat. I don't know. Why am I so awesome, Twitch chat? Well, thank you for being awesome, Eleanor, and thank you for this interview. I've been looking forward to this one all weekend, and it definitely delivered. Uh, I am even more excited about the Moingi Expanse, which, uh, can you just remind people when to expect it in their hands? Uh, it should be the end of June, assuming nobody kidnaps the uh, the dock workers who are supposed to unload the product into the docks. We, we have had some trouble with products being delayed due to unforeseen and unpreventable circumstances, but all things going smoothly, knock on wood, it will be at the end of June. People are saying July 7th. Is that, do they know something you don't? That's entirely possible. I, I am not sure about all of these uh, shipping delays that have hit everything. I I don't like how you telling me it could be kidnapped dock workers. And I'm like, yeah, that could happen. That's what this it, year's been like. It's, it's been a heck of a five years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we are running out of time. So very quickly, coming up next, we've got the Starfinder Q&A with lead designer Joe Pacini, senior developer John Compton, and developer Jason Tondro. Following that is the Pathfinder Q&A with designers Michael Sayer and James Case, design manager Mark Seifter, and director of game design Jason Bullman. And then we will be back at five o'clock to wrap things up with Aaron Shanks. And that's it for day three of PaizoCon Online 2021 seminar coverage. It's flying by once again. So, uh, yeah, we will see you in a couple of hours. And until then, enjoy the RPG Q&As coming up right now.